Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as of September 22nd, the Ontario government will bring in a vaccine certificate program for non-essential businesses, but some are arguing that this is an assault on their rights and freedoms. Is it really? Ontario doctors are being urged to be very selective about issuing medical exemptions for the COVID-19 vaccine after the government's announcement this week. Family physician Dr. Jason Perfetto joins us to explain what's going on. And the federal leaders faced off yesterday in the first election debate. What were the concerns and were there any winners? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to get into uh, well, what has become a sticky issue in some people's minds, and that is uh, vaccine passports, vaccine mandates, etc., etc., etc. We know that uh, Ontario was the latest one to jump on board this week with uh, with the proof of vaccination forms that are going to be coming out. We outlined how that was going to work out just a couple of days ago in the program, uh, and there have been protests. I mean, you, you turn on the nightly news every night, you're going to see these protests. A uh, number of different people saying, "Look, at you can't make us do this. Uh, this violates our charter rights." And uh, I, to my knowledge, at least as we, our conversation here today, uh, I don't believe there's been a, an official challenge to this, but that seems to be the indication a lot of people are. are leaning on right now so do these vaccine mandates which are now in play in manitoba and ontario and quebec and uh, british columbia to a certain extent uh, do they violate canadians charter rights it's an interesting debate and uh, i think we need to get some clarity on that and to that end we're so pleased to welcome back to the program andrew Fuguli, who is the uh, lecturer in a faculty of law at the university of toronto andrew it's always a pleasure thank you so much for the time today happy to be on as always bill well, let me just weigh in on this. Let's get right into the, the, the thick of this, because you've heard the debate over the last little while, or at least the accusations uh, about, uh, about a violation of charter rights. Uh, is, is this a black and white issue? No. Uh, charter rights are never black and white. Uh, charter rights aren't static. They don't exist no matter what the context. They always exist. But w- the extent of your charter rights depends very much on the context that you're in. Uh, And in this case, um, it would seem that most uh, of the chatter about where the challenge would be uh, would be under Section 7 of the Charter, which Mm -hmm. is that you have the right to life, liberty, and security of the person um, and not to be deprived thereof uh, except in accordance with uh, uh, with the principles of fundamental justice. And the liberty part of that is what uh, a lot of people have keyed on, and specifically that these vaccine passports um, are going to deprive people of their liberty, the liberty to do things that they were doing before uh, the pandemic hit in 2020. The problem that they're going to have with their argument is that charter rights can be limited. There's a limiting clause in the charter that allows governments to pass laws that do limit uh, your uh, your charter rights. Uh, and it's especially so depending on the context in which it's in. And when you have a context like a pandemic, your liberty rights are going to be necessarily curtailed, or I should say the government can curtail them um, in ways that they wouldn't be able to when you're living in non-pandemic times. So it's circumstances, I guess, that it's, as you mentioned, it can't be a black and white issue. And my understanding, though, Andrew, is there is a precedent for this, somebody that actually challenged uh, because I guess she wanted to go to a a family funeral or something uh, out in the East Coast and was not allowed to. And the court actually said, no, you're not because of the pandemic. Correct. There was a there was a char, a, um, a travel ban challenge yep. in that case, um, which which can affect a couple different uh, parts of the charter. There's a mobility section, uh, and obviously the life, liberty, and security of the person uh, uh, clause as well. Um, and the court shot it down uh, and essentially said this is one of those things that um, uh, unfortunately will not cause the law the ban to go down. We're in a pandemic. Uh, and and uh, unfortunately, this isn't the sort of challenge that can bring it down. Essentially, uh, the court's saying here the context is so important uh, that governments are given a far wider latitude to restrict people's rights uh, than they ordinarily would. Section 1, I guess, is what you're referring to, uh, which says in part uh, that uh, all rights and freedoms in the Charter are subject to such reasonable limits as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, uh, which basically says that, uh, depending on the circumstances, you you can have your your activities, and I guess to their extent, the liberties, uh, to some extent, curtailed, or at least put some parameters on them. it's going to be interesting, and as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I don't think there's actually been a, a, an official, you know, charter uh, charge 
or, or you know, to, to take this to court at this stage. And there's just been a lot of rhetoric on this stage. But there's a, a fundamental difference here. And I think, and then you and I talked about this, I think, in the past, Andrew. Uh, you know, we are inundated with American information all the time. And and sometimes I think we, we I tend to conflate the two of them, and you know, with their Bill of Rights and our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, and they're two very different documents with two de- very different angles to us, from what I understand. Yes, uh, they are not the same. Um, and uh, in Canada, I mean, our charter came into uh, came into force in 1982, or passed through, patriated through in 1982. Um, and the key animating idea behind it was compromise. Every right in the Canadian um, uh, in the Canadian Charter can be limited, um, either through uh, Section One by a law that limits it, or in the criminal law context, if people's charter rights are breached. The evidence isn't necessarily excluded from the trial. There's a balancing that happens. So the idea of compromise, of balancing rights, um, is intrinsic to what is in the Canadian Charter. It's not just that once a law breaches your freedom, that's it, it goes. Uh, No, once the breach happens, then you go to the Section 1 test, which asks, is this uh, the sort of law that reasonably breaches somebody's freedoms in the context we're living in, or does it not? And so that spirit is alive in all Canadian constitutional litigation, and it will be alive in this one as well. I read a piece uh, some years ago that uh, I, it struck me as somewhat simplistic, but I just wanted to get your, your read on it. Uh, they suggested that basically the, the American Bill of Rights, as it were, uh, basically puts individual rights ahead of everything else, light liberty, all this sort of stuff. Uh, the Canadian Charter tends to go the other way and simply says the greater good can supersede individual rights. Is, is that an accurate characterization? I mean, in, in many, as in many instances, there, there's some truth to the broad strokes there. Um, I think it misses the details, but in terms sure. of the, the, the sort of the fundamental animating idea behind it, um, I think there is truth to that. Um, I think Canada has generally been far more concerned about um, uh, promoting the idea that we're all in this together, that there's a collective here, um, and that individual rights, while important, um, has to have to nest within uh, uh, both how those rights affect the community and how the community would generally see the development of rights. I mean, we've had we've had areas of the law where um, the individual part of, of people's rights have become. Uh, far more important. The balance has tilted more towards the individual. And we've had areas of law where the balance, the constitutional flow uh, of the litigation has has balanced more towards the collective. But generally speaking, I think that's true. Uh, Simply put, you can't look at your charter rights and say, they only apply to me. It's all about me and my liberty. It's all about me and my security, the person. It's how those rights and your rights nest within the community. Well, and I think one of the examples of that, I guess, is the smoking bylaw that we have here. Not a bylaw now, it's a provincial law. Uh, You don't have the right to smoke wherever you want, whenever you want, because there's been a determination, I guess, uh, that it is medically unsound for you to do that around other people. So there have been limitations put on that. And I guess, by and large, people adhere to that because they understand the the legality of that. Yeah, and another example would be the the hate speech laws. Yeah. Um, You know, you could... You could claim, as claimants did, that if I promote hatred against certain identifiable groups, well, that's my freedom of expression, and I'm allowed to do that, and so that criminal code section has to go down. And the Supreme Court said, no, while your freedom of expression is important, um, there are core values to expression, and promoting hatred and violence against certain groups uh, isn't one of those core values, and so uh, the limiting law that can happen with respect to that can be a little bit more severe in the form of a criminal code law that that would allow people to be prosecuted for doing it. Um, in the same way, you're going to see courts wrestle with uh, the vaccine passport. And in non-pandemic times, um, I, I think those sorts of restrictions on liberty um, through government action uh, would be looked at far more um, cautiously by the courts. I think where we are right now um, in the pandemic and trying to get out of the pandemic, um, governments are going to be given a lot of latitude uh, to do things like a vaccine passport. Uh, Now, an important point, Bill, as you well know, is these aren't mandatory vaccines. Yeah. This isn't a government law saying everybody must 
be vaccinated. If that was the case, you would have a very severe uh, Section 7 analysis, like a forced vaccination would be a significant um, uh, uh, violation of Section 7. It would be much harder to justify that under the, the Section 1, the reasonable limits analysis. Vaccine passports do not go that far. People are arguing that, you know, uh, it's, it's basically tantamount to a forced vaccination. And it's true that people's liberties uh, in many ways are more restricted than they were uh, uh, before the passports are going to be put in. But it is not going to be viewed, I don't think, by the courts as anything near tantamount to a forced vaccination where your bodily integrity uh, gets violated. Um, so it's going to be a very tough argument for, for claimants to make to say that this is tantamount to forcing them to get vaccinated. I think governments are going to have a lot of latitude here um, uh, to try to get us further away from the worst effects of the pandemic. I think you've hit the nail on the head here with one of the most contentious parts of this, and that's the phrasing here. Uh, you know, we keep talking about vaccine mandates, and, and you're right. I mean, nobody is holding you down and saying, here's here's your vaccination. Basically, what they're saying is we want you to do this. If you choose not to, there are consequences. There are some things that you probably won't be allowed to do. And and I'm, I'm sure, Andrew, there are precedents for that all over the place. I mean, you know, if you if you choose not to obey a certain law or bylaw, there are consequences to that. Uh, you, and, and I guess a lot of people, again, get this idea that everything is their, their right. Uh, I don't have the right to go into a restaurant. I have the privilege of going into a restaurant. Uh, and that's at the behest of the owner of the restaurant, really. They, they can deny me because I don't have a shirt on or no shoes or whatever other, or because I'm not vaccinated. Uh, that's, that's not really abridging somebody's rights, is it? That's simply me enforcing my right to run a business in a safe, or, orderly fashion. Correct. And in, in fact, the fact that the charter doesn't apply to private businesses and private actions was a key thing that um, I'll say the, the conservative part of, of Canadian society and government uh, negotiated in the, um, uh, in the negotiations that led to the charter being passed uh, in the early 1980s. The charter doesn't apply to a private business uh, saying to uh, an employee, uh, if you don't get vaccinated, uh, you're fired. Or uh, if you don't get vaccinated, you don't get to be a customer in my store. You know, individuals who find that they're being discriminated against that way would have to go through employment law or through the Human Rights Tribunal. But the charter doesn't apply there. And, and, and you brought up a very important point of the idea between something that's a right and something that's a privilege. And another example of that is your driver's license. Yeah. Driving is considered a privilege in Canadian, in Canadian law. I can't just get behind the wheel if I'm a 14-year-old and say I have the liberty under Section 7 to do what I want and start driving the car. You'd be pulled over and charged. You're not allowed to do that. Um, so there is precedent not only in, in things that you can closely um, uh, make equivalent in the law, but also in our ideas about what the Constitution is and what the difference is between a right and a privilege. And, and I would assume uh, that, that the governments, whether provincial or even the federal government, if they're in, in, you know, entertaining ideas like this, uh, they, they've gone over this ground, haven't they, as to whether or not they've got a firm footing to be able to do these sorts of things. Because, so, you know, we have accepted, have we not, through the generations, uh, that governments do have the uh, the power to limit our, our activities or limit what we can and can't do, depending on, well, we use th terms like public safety, public health, things of that nature. We're used to that already, aren't we, in many different ways? We are. I mean, we live with these sorts of limits at all times. And some of your listeners who um, uh, may have grown up during uh, uh, World War II uh, will remember that that their time, their their um, their life at that time would have been far more limited, um, and, and the government would have been given far more scope during wartime to do things uh, than they ever would during peacetime. Um, and it's the same during a pandemic that uh, people, uh, I, I think, are looking to government to act. Uh, to force people, uh, to force us to get away from the worst effects of the pandemic. And, and I can tell you, it seems, uh, from my understanding, that um, it's private businesses that are most lobbying the government right now yeah. uh, to come up with something like this, because otherwise it's left to private businesses to go ad hoc on this and, and leave private businesses to come up with balances for their employees um, who don't want customers coming in who aren't vaccinated, 
um, and uh, balancing that with their customers who aren't vaccinated who want to come in. Um, government action fills that void. It, it, it takes the decision making away from the private businesses uh, and makes things uniform. Um, and I think that the government will have had legal opinion. I, I have no doubt they have. They have. Uh, they all have staffs that uh, of lawyers who who go through this uh, legislation. Now that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to going to pass muster with the courts, mm-hmm. right? Those lawyers have been wrong before uh, in how laws are drafted and laws have been struck down many times in the past. Um, but I have no doubt they've considered a range of alternatives, and uh, each province is going to come up with the balance in a different way. But they're coming. They're coming for every province. Uh, and uh, the courts are going to give those governments in these situations, in this context, a lot of latitude as to, as to the, the balance that they've decided to craft. We tend not to be as litigious as, uh, as our neighbors to the south. Uh, do you anticipate there's going to be a charter challenge here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. Um, the idea of a court taking a look at this, of... of, of as an institution that we've put out as a neutral third party, taking a look at this from a constitutional context is a good thing. That's what the courts are there for. Um, and so to those who uh, want to challenge this mandate, the court is the way to do it uh, and, and having them uh, consider this. I have no doubt the challenge is coming from somebody. Um, we've seen challenges in Ontario already. Um, we, we all remember the Adamson barbecue challenge. Mm-hmm. There will be more. Um, but uh, that's a good thing. And, uh, and it'll be very interesting to see um, exactly what the courts are going to say about these passports uh, and the specifics of their judgments into each part of the passport um, and each restriction that's in there. But it's coming and that's positive. Andrew, always great to get your perspective on this and add some clarity to uh, what has become a very heated debate. Thank you so much for this. Uh, Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again soon. You too, Bill. Talk to you soon. Take care. Andrew Fugirli, of course, uh, lecturer at Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, a criminal lawyer in Toronto, uh, with his perspective on uh, constitutional arguments, which are uh, rampant these days because of the, uh, the challenges that are anticipated. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big news week uh, because of uh, the things that are going on, not just with the federal election, but uh, the announcement from the Ontario government. Uh, about uh, their proof of vaccination policy that's uh, going to be into effect. And it's not for a couple of weeks. September 22nd is the first phase, and by October 22nd, you're supposed to have all the data there and hopefully get vaccinated in the meantime. Anyway, one of the concerns here is they said there could be some exemptions. If you have, in other words, a doctor's note, that's essentially what it kind of comes down to here. But have, after that information was uh, was put forward there, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario has uh, warned doctors that they have to be selective about issuing medical exemptions uh, for COVID-19 vaccines. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Jason Profeto, who's a family physician. He's also the chair of clinical skills and assistant clinical professor at McMaster University's undergraduate medical program. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you again for having me here. Pleasure. Let's let's talk a bit about process, if we could, and, and we'll get into the COVID thing in just a second. But uh, doctor's notes, exemptions for this, that, the other thing. I mean, uh, what is the process and, and what are the criteria in which a doctor must work? So I, I think the big distinguishing factor here is that what's happening now with the COVID vaccines and what's happened in the past is quite different. So Previously, if, for example, someone needed an exemption note for something rather simple, it was very easy. You would be nonspecific and you would say, due to a medical reason, this person's unable to do this or unable to do that. Now, the difficulty is we're going from those previous examples to the COVID vaccine. And the COVID vaccine has gotten has become much more challenging because of the passport. So now there has to be very, very specific reasons as per the College of uh, physicians and surgeons of Ontario. And the other unique part is that now for the first time that I've really been in practice, there's a bit of an adjudication process. So a letter from a doctor now will not suffice in and of itself, and it requires more clarification and a bit more precise reasoning. Exactly. How would that follow then? What what, what would that process be? So what would happen now, and I mean, this has been my life for the past week or thereabouts. (laughs) A patient will call the office or, or get in contact with us and they'll, they'll say that for whatever their specific concern or their reason is, they, would, they do not want to get the, me- the vaccine. 
But as a result of the vaccine passports and how it precludes individuals from going to a, a restaurant or a gym, for example, they would like a medical exemption so that they can continue to do these things. And then that's where, for physicians, we have to make a decision about whether or not the medical exemption is what we think legitimate and appropriate or it's not. And nowadays, the, the stakes are a little bit higher and it, it, it's a much more precise and delicate issue. Effectively, effectively, physicians cannot write medical exemptions unless there's a proven or documented allergy to the actual vaccine. Mm. So in other words, and, and you've, I'm sure, probably since you, this has been your life for the last week, I'm sure you've had more than a few of these. Uh, well, doctor, I'm, I'm unsure of the long-term effects of the of the vaccine, or, or I've heard uh, stories that it could impact uh, reproductive processes in women, so we're, we're, we don't want it. Uh, in, in your mind, it's, it's from what you're explaining, those would not be legitimate reasons. So here we enter the gray of a very black and white world. So the black yeah. and white says the the... the the only exemption is a documented allergy or perhaps a history of what we call myocarditis and inflammation of the heart. The trouble, however, is, for example, someone contacted me recently and they said after they received a previous vaccine for something else, they developed Bell's palsy in which half of their face was unable to function and weren't able to speak. And now they say that they're very terrified about getting this reaction again. And while I cannot provide them any guarantees that it won't happen, it's very unlikely that it would happen. But I also understand their concerns. And I think that like one of the major challenges that a lot of people don't understand, and this is why we're in a gray world, is that a lot of the people that contact me are not, a lot, the vast majority are not anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorists. These are very reasonable people that get nervous about whatever related to the vaccine, the fertility conversation, for example. But... If you look at the data, you look at the science, you trust the experts, these things are extremely unlikely. However, you do have to, be, I, I would argue, I, you do have to be sensitive and, and understand where people are coming from, balance everything, and then try to move forward in the most appropriate way. And, and this is really variations, I'm, I'm sure, doctor, on something that you, a challenge that you and, and other doctors have been facing for quite some time, is, is I don't want to call it self-diagnosis, but I mean situations where, for instance, the, the individual that sadly developed Bell's palsy, I mean, it was, was there proven medical evidence that one caused the other or would it happen coincidentally? Because we've had those arguments and those debates for some time now. I mean, you know, there are some people that think that children's vaccinations cause autism. Uh, there's no medical evidence to that, but, you know, there's some people out there that just believe that and, and that's stuck in their minds. And, and it's, it's sadly, it falls onto your lap and other doctors to say, look, at here's, here's the reality. Yeah. I, so, I mean, vaccines have been proven to be safe quite substantially over decades. And I mean, since I've been in practice, I, I can honestly say I haven't really had any, any issues whatsoever with vaccines. Um, I think what we'll see is a lot of correlative logical reasoning. So people say, you know, this happened around the time of the vaccine, and that's why I'm concerned. But these things are not proven as causative factors. And, and that, I really believe that. I mean, the, the vaccines that we've given out for, for years now have been very, very safe. The whole MMR debate was, was put to sleep a long time ago, even though people still do bring it up. Mm -hmm. I think where, where my issue personally, as, as like, as a, when, I, when I think from an ethical perspective, is that I, I, I understand the science very well, and I trust my, my expert colleagues and my infectious disease uh, experts and the public health people. However, I, I also respect and understand that others will not necessarily see it the same as myself and this is where i try to be a little bit more sensitive and understanding right is that if someone for example had bell's palsy i didn't have bell's palsy they did that was their experience and i don't want to minimize or dismiss it right whether i mean not that that's going to lead to a medical exemption letter for the vaccine but to understand and to communicate in a little bit more of an understanding way i think is prudent and again, that's that's going to be part of the problem. And as, as we've talked about in the past, I mean, you can go on the Internet and, uh, and find any number of different sites that are going to substantiate just about any other point of view. There's, there's a logistical thing about vaccines that I wanted to, to, to get your opinion on, though, Doctor, because I'm hearing some debate about that as well. And, and one of those stories that, that I mentioned just a minute ago was I'm concerned about the long-term impact of the vaccine on my body. 
I've, I've had another doctor a, a couple of weeks ago explain to me that, and, and again, I assume most vaccines are like this, uh, the vaccine does not stay in your body forever. Uh, it's there for a couple of weeks to build up antibodies, and then it, my understanding is, and you know far more about this than I, it's, it's transferred into your lymph system and, and we get rid of it. And it, It's not there for long periods of time. So I, 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 is that a fairly accurate description of how this process works? So it is accurate. It is accurate. I wonder about the utility of that discussion. So, and what I mean is this, is that getting into a deeper, detailed, granular, scientific discussion, I'm not sure is always the most helpful thing for people, especially when it gets very nuanced and unknown to a lot of people who enter the discussion. Mm -hmm. In the end, if I needed to get my car fixed, I go to a mechanic that ultimately I trust. And if the mechanic, if he or she says, something about something that I have no idea about. I, I mean, at one point or another, I trust them or I don't. So the problem with the vaccines, in my opinion, is that if you go on Twitter and people in bolded letters say vaccine passports now or or, you, you know, you've seen these headlines about, quote, the unvaccinated and what they're doing or not doing. I don't think that's helpful. These are all people. These are our brothers or sisters or friends, our colleagues. We need to engage in a more um, uh, sensitive and understanding way to, to bring people closer to the answer so that we can converge. And ultimately, people will do things that are good for them when they're listening to people that they trust. And I, I, can't, tell, Dan, I can't tell you how many times with, with childhood vaccines, a patient says to me, did you vaccinate your children? And I'll say, yes, I, I have vaccinated my children and my entire family is vaccinated. And they'll say, OK, OK, I mean, that, 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 that's, that's helpful. As opposed to getting into the, you know, the, the types of immune responses and, you know, the types of immune cells and, and the immunology behind it, per se, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a guard. It's a, and, and the same situation. I mean, we've talked about the vaccinations, too, and the impact that we, we have in, and, and the efficacy of these. And that's, I guess, the concern. What about the other element, too? Because I know I'm, I'm picking your brain here, and I appreciate your time on this, Doctor, because the, these are a lot of things that come through me on email. And, and I, I, I don't have the medical expertise. I usually try to refer them to somebody else about this. But, you know, we talked about, you know, how long the vaccine stays in your body. There's that concern as well. Uh, and then there's the, the idea about, well, you know, the, the impact that the vaccine can have in side effects on situations like this, uh, which has got an awful lot of people caused uh, to, to concern about this and say, well, maybe I shouldn't go down this road again. How, how do we do we try to convince people? Uh, because I'm of the same opinion with you. I think there's a small percentage of people that are what we call anti-vaxxers that they're just for one reason or another, they just don't want this and they just think it's evil. And we've heard all those stories. But there's a large body of people, I think, that just aren't sure and they haven't made up their minds. And we saw that in Ontario. I'm sure you saw the stats on that earlier this week. Once the government announced that this uh, this vaccination uh, proof was going to be in play, they doubled the number of people requesting vaccines the very next day, which I guess got a few people off the fence and said, well, I guess I may as well do this now. So they're, they're, I think there's still wiggle room within that undecided group right now to try to get our vaccination rates up. I, I agree. Um, I think this is where semantics is important. Words like convince, persuade, coerce, I don't think are as helpful as opposed to advise, consult, and recommend. I think when, when people feel that they have autonomous power in their decision-making, when they feel that they've been led in the right direction for the right reasons with people and, let's say, leadership that they trust, I think not only do people make the right decision, but they make it for the right reason. So, it's an interesting finding to see vaccinations rise, and we've seen this in several jurisdictions where you implement some sort of mandatory vaccine passport um, or you cannot access certain areas. And the next thing you know, within a couple of days, there's so many more vaccinations actually happening. Is that good? Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, more people are getting vaccinated. But at the same time, at, at, at what the methodology that we use to arrive at that point is, is an interesting one. And I think there's, there's debate to be had there. But again, I, I, I talk to a lot of people, a lot, who have concerns about leadership, about people in power, and about who's developing vaccines and these sorts of things. So they need to engage with people that they trust. Our messaging has to be collegial, professional, and appropriate. And I think I'm surprised why we haven't used more behavioral psychology strategies in understanding people as opposed to, you know, this, this more political feel and flavor to the discussion around vaccines recently.
I agree because, and, and we've talked about this on the program. Uh, you know, trying to shame people into doing this is, is the wrong way to go. Because uh, first of all, that small percentage of anti-vaxxers are not going to be swayed one way or another by that. The others are, are, may dig their heels in and simply say, "Look, at I'm not going to be coerced into this." Uh, there has to be education and kind of bring people along. Uh, which I guess part of that is, is based on the foundation that some people are saying, well, look, at they rushed the vaccine. You know, they, they got this done in a year and it's supposed to take five or ten years to get something like that. And that's, that again, is a story that's out there. And it's not totally true because I, from my understanding, talking to a number of epidemiologists, I've talked to more of them in the last year and a half than I ever thought I would in my life. Uh, is is the, this process really started with SARS way back when, when they started developing vaccines like this. The process certainly was accelerated uh, when COVID-19 came along, but that was because the governments threw an awful lot of money at it and said, you got to get this done now. So, you know, t- uh, people can't assume that we started with nothing and then within 12 months we had a vaccine. It didn't really work that way, did it? No, yeah, I, I think that's, it, it, that's a fair statement in how you describe it. Um, vaccines are not things that just pop up, and, and we do have ex extensive experience with the development and implementation of vaccines. So again, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you just look at experience. If you look at my practice, my father's practice, Dr. Savateri, we've been around collectively for decades and, and we effectively have had no issues with vaccines. So when a vaccine is developed, it, it really does not come out of thin air. There is a very strong scientific process to it. They definitely do work to to what degree they work is always debatable, and that's where you have to see with, with time and, and uh, you know, a bit of research what happens. But for sure, uh, vaccines are developed in the safest way possible. And if there's any issues that come up, they have to be disclosed to the public, right? Like, for example, the myocarditis issue. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, the inflammation of the heart or the, the, the sac around the heart, I guess, are the, the two main areas like that. Uh, are, are those pre-existing conditions or is there evidence to suggest that some vaccines might actually uh, in, cause that or inflame what's, or is it just inflaming what's already there? Yeah, it, there's, there's actually there's a little bit of conversation around the, that exact question. And again, establishing causal links is tricky. The other thing is, is that if you vaccinate a million people and there's, for example, two people that get a very rare event occur, the problem is that a million people, there would probably be rare events anyway, even without any vaccine intervention. So there is that whole thing about is correlation causation or not. You have to understand statistical power and how you can draw those links. And more than anything, you really have to be careful when you say one thing causes another, right? So I think more often than not, what you'll see is correlative data. Things happen perhaps by chance, but only because of the large numbers that are used. And, and that was part of the discussion, wasn't it, when the vaccine uh, rollout actually started? Uh, the, the phrase we kept hearing was pre-existing conditions, uh, and, and that could be diabetics. It could be a number of different things. But uh, as, as we've talked about, I mean, there are probably a lot of people listening to the show right now that have a pre-existing condition they don't know about. Uh, and, and that may, you know, the vaccine may or may not have an impact on that. So there's, there's, as you mentioned, there's a lot of gray area here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I, I, so in my principled approach to vaccination, I, I still hold it firm. I would say to people that the vaccine is safe, it is effective. I personally am vaccinated, as is my family, and I would recommend it. I'm happy to discuss it, and I'm happy to answer questions and to clarify. I, and again, the, the words are, are powerful to me. I would consult, I would advise, and I would recommend. I'm not so sure that I would, would try to push a, a, a sort of like a, a to persuade or to coerce any one individual to do anything. And I think there's a lot of collective power in getting people to understand and trust decisions that are being made for the greater good. Is there concern, doctor, that, uh, that family physicians are, may have pressure put on them by patients saying, look, I got to get this. I, you know, I just don't believe in this stuff. Or, or, I, I mean, you mentioned that there is a set of criteria that the doctor has to, to, pay, to follow and, you know, you check these boxes. And if they qualify, I, you mentioned allergic reactions and things of this nature. Uh, but is, is there an anticipation right now that there could be a flurry of people saying, I don't care about that. I just want the exemption. So that is the understatement of the, the year 2021. <laughs> the, the amount, the, and, and I, I really wish people would appreciate this a little bit more. And I, I, I personally thank the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario for making this more clear. So doctors are under significant pressure from people who would like a medical exemption. People who would like a medical exemption are not necessarily bad people. These are very, very often 
reasonable, kind people that are just worried for whatever reason. So doctors are not usually in between a debate between vaccine versus anti-vaxxer. They're usually in a position where they have someone present with, for example, the Bell's palsy. Can I get a medical exemption? I'm very, very scared. That's the conversation I have. I don't have a conversation all the, all, always with conspiracy theorists. That, that's, that's less common for me. So there's a lot of pressure. Having a very clear, defined outcome or recommendation from the CPSO is very helpful for doctors. And at least now we know we cannot write a medical exemption unless there's a documented allergy. So our conversation shifts a little bit to answering questions and help clarifying for patients why they would benefit from a vaccination should they wish to do so. And uh, just to wrap up our conversation, so we're just about out of time here, I guess it goes back to your original point here, that there has to be that level of trust between patient and doctor, just as there is between, you know, client and, and auto mechanic. You know, if, if you trust their expertise and trust their work, then you have to trust their judgment too. Absolutely. And maybe one of the last things I'll say is that the end point of our conversa- my conversations with people is usually collegial and convergent. And people will say things like, this was really helpful. Thank you for understanding. I think I'm going to get it. Just need a little bit more time to think about it. I'll let you know if anything changes. I appreciate your time. And if that's the end point of a conversation, the, the, the chance, the percent chance that you're going to end up with someone successfully vaccinating in an autonomous way is much, much higher than being militant or coercive about it. And I think that's a very important distinction. Absolutely. Dr. Jason Perfetto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for this and thank you for the clarification. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, leaders squared off. It was the first of a number of uh, leaders' debates which are coming up, uh, with Quebec becoming a three-way fight between the Liberals, the Bloc, and the Conservatives ahead of the vote on September 20th. The four leaders uh, did their best to woo the province's voters last night. Global's Michael Couture has details. With 78 seats in the province of Quebec, this first French debate was an important one. It started with a pandemic group photo, followed by each leader hoping to put some distance between them and their opponent. But it got fiery when Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet challenged all leaders to say whether or not all their candidates were fully vaccinated. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh confirmed all of his were. Justin Trudeau said all but one with a medical exemption. And Tory leader Aaron O'Toole dodged the question. Well, uh, does that necessarily count as a score as you know what we're looking for here is you know who won the debate that's always the phrase that gets used uh please to welcome back to the program dr laurie turnbull uh, dr turnbull is the director of the school of public administration at dalhousie university doctor always a pleasure thanks for being with us today uh thanks so much for having me on did anybody score any any points yesterday was any get ground gained that's an interesting question like i mean i think o'toole held his own like i think he did you know he's fine he doesn't have to worry um, I think it's possible that Singh got somewhere. You know, like I think it's going to be an interesting election for him to see if he can win any of those seats back that he lost, that we kind of expected he would. But at the same time, I wonder if he's, if he's got any room to grow there. I think probably. I think um, Justin Trudeau obviously came in, you know, kind of, he was ready for a fight. Like he knows that if he's going to get that majority or even keep his minority at this point, it's going to be largely on the basis of what he can do in Ontario and Quebec. And so he was very focused on no nonsense. Let's connect as much as I can. I don't think it was a great night for uh, Blanchette, to be honest. Most of the time, as, as I and I analyzed it anyway, Doctor, it seemed as if uh, Trudeau's focus was on, on Aaron O'Toole. Uh, that's the guy that I've got to beat. That's the guy that I've got to knock down. And it, it was interesting because, as you just mentioned, this is the Quebec debate. You would have figured this is this is Blanchette's home turf, uh, yet he didn't really shine, I thought, anyway. I thought the same. And I think, like, in 2019, I think that he was really successful because he was very positive. Like, he was charismatic. He smiled. You want to be around him kind of thing. This time he seems like really in a different way, like he's on the attack. Um, he, he seems kind of cranky and swipey and not as much positive momentum around his campaign. And I know that's not, you know, those things are not really like deep political analytical things, but it does matter how a leader carries oneself during the campaign, whether you draw positive attention, whether you, you know, you sort of attract people to you to, to invite them to think about your campaign a little more. And yeah, like, I mean, Quebec is his whole game. Like he's got... 78 seats that he can contend for. So he's got a, like that last night was hugely important for him. 
Talk to us about O'Toole. I mean, the conservatives uh, and Quebec uh, uh, is like oil and water sometimes. They, uh, you know, I know there was a period of time there where they were very successful, but that's going almost back to the Mulroney days. Uh, yeah. The, and, and they've got to make inroads into Quebec if they ever want, hope to form a government. Uh, that's going to have to be not necessarily win all of the seats, but they're going to have to win a lot more than they have in the last couple of elections. Uh, does Aaron O'Toole have what it takes to attract Quebec voters? I mean... I think his, when it comes to his French, right, like, I mean, it, it wasn't beautiful, but it was, it got him through. And whereas if you look back in 2019, the TVA debate was a huge bad moment for Andrew Scheer and showed that he wasn't going to connect in Quebec really at all. And I think Aaron O'Toole didn't, certainly did not have anything like that. And so I think it's certainly possible that he could make those inroads. I think you're right. Like when the last time that that party was really kind of big in Quebec was, was when the party was progressive conservative, truly. The conservative model under Harper didn't fly in Quebec at all and obviously didn't fly under Andrew Scheer either. With O'Toole, I mean, like he's put forward a platform that I think is progressive in its own way. And I think he's, he's trying to get on that progressive side. The whole thing with the campaign seems to me Trudeau trying to push O'Toole to the non-progressive side and say, like, no, he's actually against these progressive things, and don't give your vote to him. He's, you know, he's got a hidden agenda kind of thing. And I think O'Toole is sort of keeping it cool and saying, no, no, like this, these are the things. I, I care about climate change. I care about social programs. In Quebec, I respect the fact that you have autonomy, and I'm going you know, to build around that. I think he, he kind of got a few, um, he got some swipes at him around the child care issue. I don't know how he's going to resolve that one. But is it possible for Quebecers to vote for him? Sure. What about the NDP? I mean, this, uh, you know, the year that, or the election, rather, that uh, they actually formed the loyal opposition uh, under Jack Layton uh, was basically because of the seats they picked up in Quebec, and they lost them the election after that, uh, much to the chagrin of, uh, of a Quebecois Tom Mulcair. But it, it is, and, and Singh was a non-entity uh, in that last federal election in 2019, and that, I'm sure that weighed against him heavily, especially in Quebec. Uh, he seems to be, according to the polls we've seen, Doctor, the, still the most popular of the four leaders. And now that doesn't necessarily translate into votes, uh, but will it in Quebec, will it help him retain, uh, regain some of those seats? I mean, I think it's certainly possible. Like, and as you say, when the NDP formed the official opposition, that was because of Quebec. That was because their leader, who had been leader for eight years at that point, right? Like, it wasn't like he came onto the scene and did this right, right, like right away. But Leighton was the right guy in Quebec. Uh, he knew that the block seats were vulnerable. He said the right things to Quebec about uh, national unity and their place in confederation and opening the constitution. And he hit the same kind of social justice, um, you know, social program kind of notes that the Bloc Québécois were hitting. And so there, there's a really interesting, interesting dynamic, and I think we saw it last night, between the Bloc Québécois and the NDP in Quebec even though we think of it as, you know, Bloc Québécois and liberal. And so he could, you know, if, if Singh's popularity holds and Trudeau's continues to tank, then yes, you know, Singh could absolutely be a, a safe place for people to park their vote. And so we could see a lot of volatility in Quebec. I think that's really where the election is going to play out. Part, you know, part of the problem, I think, here is, is that we're trying to attach labels, as we tend to want to do in politics. Uh, in many ways, those labels don't apply in Quebec, do they, Doctor? I mean, you know, liberals are not really liberals. Liberals are really small-c conservatives. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, there's different aspects to this right now. It's a different political bent in, in that particular province, much different than you'd see, for instance, out west or probably even in Ontario. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, we are very, very much, you know, a, a country of regions, and we see that whenever there's an election and the lens that is over an election, a federal election in Quebec is very different than Ontario, Atlantic Canada, or the West. They are always going to have as front and center, or at least as they do now, and I think for the foreseeable future, would have Quebec's place in Confederation as that key question. Like that is the major dividing line, and where do the parties fall on that line? Whereas in other provinces and, and regions, that line would be different. And so in this case, like I, I and I think, you know, as you say, the, the labels don't apply. I, I think... In this election in particular, the labels don't matter as much because all the parties are really offering, you know, quite like the three main are offering robust spending packages. Blanchette can't offer that, right? He can, O'Toole has made that point several times. Mm -hmm. Blanchette can't give you a government. So let's talk about me because I can. <laughs> so like, I think that's kind of how he's hoping to build an inroad into Quebec. 
which has got to be the tact I think both the Liberals and the Conservatives would take in this situation, mm-hmm. isn't it? That, uh, yeah, this guy's, you know, great Quebecois, native, yeah, but he can't deliver. Uh, he, he can only deliver what we put on the table. Uh, and even then, you know, it, it depends on where the other votes are. But again, I don't know how astute the voters are going to be about that. Uh, when they're angry, they tend to vote for the bloc. Uh, when they're looking for something, and, uh, and let's face it, you know, with huge transfer money on the table right now, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see uh, just how this rolls out. Uh, more to come on this, uh, the, the English language debate coming up next week and uh, another French language debate about after that. So uh, we'll see where the, the chips fall on this, Doctor. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this, and uh, have a great Labor Day weekend. You too. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, uh, talking about the leaders' debate. And next Thursday, by the way, is the English language debate. And it's the, our understanding, the only English language debate from all the leaders anyway uh, that's going to be taking place. So there's a, a lot at stake in that particular model, especially with some of the numbers that we have seen on this. Glad you're with us today. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. As, as we look at the uh, campaigns themselves, uh, it's pretty obvious that there are some common themes that are here. Uh, the daycare program is something that's been talked about an awful lot. So is housing, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. But number one, every time there's an election, and it doesn't matter if it's provincial or federal, it's always about health care. And that's a main focus this time for a lot of reasons, not just because of COVID, but because of some other main things that we need to be talking about here. And there's a, a great deal of pressure being put, and I think justifiably so, on all of the party leaders now to come up and let's talk about health care and what is your plan. And uh, joining us to talk about this and what we'd like to see from the government going forward is uh, Dr. Dr. Bernard Ho is a family uh, medical resident with Sinai Health and member of the Canadian Doctors of Medicare. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. We're, we're going to morph into, into some, well, very dicey ideas here about health care uh, as it pertains to jurisdiction, whether it's the province or the federal government. Uh, and one of those areas, Doctor, as you well know, is long-term care facilities. All of the leaders have talked about what they want to do for long-term care because it's been one of the, the focus uh, points of, of what happened with the pandemic here, especially in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, and, of course, there's some pushback from the provinces. What would you like to see from the uh, our federal government, whoever the next prime minister is going to be, to do with this? Is, is it a hot potato issue or is it something that they're going to have to jump into no matter what? So I think it's something that they're going to have to jump into no matter what. I mean, the pandemic has really shown how disproportionately impacted vulnerable people living in long-term care facilities are uh, across the country. We've had over 15,000 deaths in Canada just from COVID-19-related deaths in long-term care facilities, and compared to other high-income OECD countries, disproportionate deaths in Canada is significantly higher. And so the organizations that I'm um, representing, Canadian Doctors for Medicare and Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, uh, are asking for four recommendations for all uh, party leaders to improve long-term care within Canada. And so firstly, to eliminate profits in long-term care. And again, the pandemic has exposed the dangers of for-profit long-term care for our loved ones. And so we recommend that the federal government pass legislation to end the ability to profit in long-term care. Secondly, we want to legislate national standards. And there has been a committee that has been struck to develop these national standards, which is a, a positive step forward for sure. But setting these standards without providing any additional resources or funding won't really affect any meaningful change. And so we recommend that the federal government adopt legislation to enforce these standards along with removing profits from long-term care. Thirdly is the is permanent dedicated federal funding. Um, and last year, the federal government did create a new funding envelope called the Safe Long-Term Care Fund to flow funding to provinces and territories. But this needs to remain permanent uh, and dedicated to ensure that this sort of pandemic and crisis doesn't happen again. And, and lastly, is the National Human Health Resources Strategy. There's already been a significant staffing crisis prior to the pandemic, and it's only been exacerbated by COVID-19. And this is notably worse in for-profit facilities that rely on agency staff and create unstable working conditions. So we recommend that, that the federal government commit to urgently training and recruiting efforts for physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, personal support workers, and anyone providing frontline care in this sector. And those are the recommendations that we want to, to see enacted uh, for any federal government that comes on board. Doctor, do you get the sense that they, I hope anyway, that the, these people understand the urgency here? I mean, you, for instance, you talked to your last point here about human resources. Uh, 
Yeah, I know this Ontario government has passed a resolution now that said, you know, we've got a four-year plan to train and, and you know, increase wages, et cetera. We, it needs to happen yesterday, not four years from now. Uh, and, and that's what we're looking for, I guess, from the federal government is, is to expedite some of this stuff. That's, exa- that's exactly right. Uh, and it's, it's been sort of disappointing and, and surprising to hear how little emphasis has been placed on long-term, this long-term care crisis in the, the few weeks leading up to the federal election. I mean, the, the Liberal government has committed to $9 billion uh, in improving long-term um, funding to long-term care, which is up from their $3 billion during the 2021 um, uh, budget announcement. Um, but that's still a far cry from what the Parliamentary Budget Officer recommended uh, earlier this year in terms of $13.7 billion per year to meet higher standards of care for, uh, for elder care. Um, and again, uh, we still want to see a, a committed debt, uh, committed legislation to eliminate profits in long-term care, because as we know, there have been higher death rates in for-profit chains uh, throughout the, the, the country, and f- several analyses have showed um, residents who live in, in for-profit chains are at higher risk of developing COVID-19 and are higher risk of unfortunately dying from the pandemic. I know that uh, I, I just mentioned at the beginning of our conversation here that there's a, a jurisdictional battle that's going to go on here because the provinces always push back and say, well, that, that's health care and that's our responsibility. And I don't want to pull you into the political weeds too much here, Doctor, but if the federal government is going to commit to funding, and by the way, the $13 million, you're right, is, is still not enough. There has to be sustainable funding, uh, not just one-time funding like they've, they've been doing over the past. But if they're going to write the checks, they, they've got a right to be at the table and said that these are the regulations. I mean, that, that they've got to be adamant about that. And that's right. And as you said, we, we need the, the agreement and participation from the provinces and the territories, but there definitely needs to be permanent federal funding. Otherwise, we'll continue to see these issues come up again and again. And, and as I mentioned before, these issues of, 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 um, of poor staffing and, and, and neglect in these long-term care facilities were there before COVID-19. And that's the issue. But COVID-19 has really brought these these issues to the forefront and has really exacerbated these cracks in our long-term care system. Well, and, and something has to be done about this. You know, we've talked about aging population, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and it is a reality, and it's a, something that the government's going to have to deal with. i I got about a minute left here. I'm concerned, as you are, Doctor, that uh, this is an issue that seemed to be front and center about three weeks ago. Uh, it seems to have fallen off the table right now. I don't hear any of them talking about it anymore. And that's exactly what we're, t- we're talking about as well. We're not really sure why. We're quite disappointed to hear. And we, we you know, the, the, the military reports from Ontario and Quebec that came out earlier this year were, were at quarantine. And 26 residents died from neglect, and all they needed was a water or a wipe down. And there were, there were feces and vomit on the floor. Like, I don't even know what to say about that. But, but for some reason, there hasn't really been much of an emphasis on the discussion of long-term care. And the other thing is that the majority of Canadians actually agree with us that they should remove profits from long-term care and that more emphasis needs to be placed on home care and on improving elder care within Canada. Absolutely. Uh, we, we thank you and, and those of uh, your organization, Doctor, who are doing such great work uh, to keep this issue front and center. It's something that we absolutely positively have to get some resolution to. And uh, this election is, is, I think, an opportunity for that to happen. Uh, thanks you for this uh, again, Doctor, and we'll stay in touch. And ho- hopefully we can talk about some good news on this on the other side. But uh, we'll keep the pressure on in the meantime. Great. Thanks so much for having me again, Bill. Take care. Dr. Bernard Ho, uh, family medicine resident of the Sinai Health, and also a member of that Canadian Doctors of Medicare Association that uh, he talked about. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.